Let's turn to John chapter 12. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you're following along, we skipped chapter 11 because Matt preached on it last year for Easter. So we encourage you to go back and read the story of Lazarus and let Matt encourage you from the word from that story. But this morning we're jumping over 11 and headed into 12. Since Jared just prayed, I just encourage us to stay in that prayerful posture of, of leaning into God's word. God's word has an effect every time we open it. And I think the, the word that came to mind for me this morning and the effect that is possible for us is, is tension. And what I mean by that is there is no secret that in our world today we live tense, Right? Uh, the virus, other things are spreading. And C.S. Lewis had this perceptive quote one time about the, the evil one, Satan, and his, his desire to get us off on this idea of tension. And he said, if you can get us thinking about what happens to us versus how we're going to respond, then you've already opened the door for temptation, for the evil one to, to have his foot in the door. So I wonder what you think about when you hear the word tension. I think the Bible has a way of unburdening us from the inappropriate tension that the world presses us into. Things like fear and worry. But the Bible has a way of of helping us live in the appropriate tension for which we were created. The Bible doesn't remove tension. It recalibrates tension so we see it clearly. On May 19th, back in 1963, a letter emerged from Birmingham, from a prison cell right here in Birmingham that would later become known as the letter from a Birmingham jail. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this letter in response to some criticism that the civil rights activists were receiving for their actions to force an issue out into the light that was hidden. He defended their use of action to create tension in this way. It'll be up on your screen so you can read along with me. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize or dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive Nonviolent tension, which is necessary for growth. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out into the open where it can be seen and dealt with. A suppressed tension in that day needed to be exposed and addressed. And thank God he used the civil rights movement to exert the pressure needed for our country's history to be altered for the good. And as we turn to John chapter 12 today, I think Dr. And King, Dr. King and the Apostle John share the same posture toward tension. We have reached a crisis moment 
in the narrative of John. And it's not merely a crisis for the characters in the story. John 12 actually presses in on us as the readers of Scripture this morning. And it forces us out into the open as well. And we find ourselves, when the stakes are the highest they have been thus far in the narrative of John, and in our lives today, we find ourselves having to take sides. Now, Dr. King and the Apostle John and Jesus have this interest that is different. Negotiation was needed in the 60s in America for two sides to come together. But for John and Jesus, negotiation is not the goal. That's not the case. You see, when the stakes are the highest and the risks are the highest at following Jesus, as they are in John chapter 12, Jesus doesn't lower the bar to meet us in the middle. He presses in and presses it further. Look with me at verse 25 in John chapter 12. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. Jesus is not bringing us to the negotiating table to to broker a deal. There's no gray here. He will have ultimate allegiance or he will be of no benefit at all. He defines the terms, and at the moment of the most pressing need, he he raises the bar so that we might understand the extreme nature of following him, loving, hating, losing, keeping, this earthly life or eternal life. Those are the stakes in the game. Jesus knew it was tense. We're going to see him almost buckle under that pressure here in a few minutes. He knew it was tense, but what does he do? He raises the bar and forces us out into the open so that we might address the tension that we all have to face in our lives. He didn't lessen the demand. He said, me or nothing. Tim Keller summarized Jesus' intent well when he wrote these words. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus himself tells us to count the cost of discipleship, of what it means to follow him. But I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they're willing to give up things, but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. I once heard a Bible teacher put it like this. When it comes to following Jesus, the hardest thing to give is in. The hardest thing to give is in. Giving up the right to determine just how much Jesus has authority over our lives. Giving up the the right to let him define the terms of our relationship. In order to close with Christ. Do you remember the illustration Matt gave last week of the basic message of the gospel summarized in in his hand motion that Mike Willimore used? Christ died for our sins. And Mike wanted to close with that message. He wanted his life to, to be anchored on that message. So he wanted to hold on to it for the rest of his life. But the issue that Jesus is bringing up in John 12 is if there's something else in your hand, you can't close on that message. You've got to have an empty hand in order to close with Christ. Nothing can be there. The, the tension of this text of giving in to Jesus is sandwiched actually in between a section that shows us how he did not give in on his mission. 
Our giving in in this passage is actually eclipsed and nestled into the story by his, about his not giving up. And church, that has a way of changing the conversation. If you see Jesus this morning in his finest hour, I think negotiation will lose its appeal. We are drawn to him in such a way because he can be fully trusted. We feel ourselves leaning into him despite the risks he is talking about in following him because leaving everything behind is worth it because he's such a trustworthy Savior and Lord. I wonder when you hear the words follow me, which one sounds louder in your mind? It's follow a burden this morning. It's follow where you put the emphasis or me, me. You get to follow me. I think the beauty of Jesus in this passage recalibrates the burden of following him in our lives. So this is what's going to happen, I hope, by God's grace this morning. The hardest part, giving in to Jesus, is actually going to become the most hopeful part because Jesus is this good as we see him in his finest hour. Let me read from uh, John chapter 12, verse 17 through 36, so that we can hear from God's word and we'll unpack it together. Verse 17, Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. So Jesus' popularity is just soaring. He just raised a man from the dead that had been dead for four days. So the crowds are hanging on his every move. Then the Pharisees, you can sense their despair, said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And in true form, John includes how the world has, is going after him in verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who, sent up to wor- who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my soul, Jesus speaking, is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his cross, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah must remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be 
lifted up. Who is this son of man? Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. So think about it. Jesus' popularity here is soaring. The crowd is hanging on his every, every move. If there was a tw- Twitter feed live in that day, it would have been blowing up with his activity. Lazarus is out of the tomb. They wave palm branches before him when he enters Jerusalem as a sign of his, the peace that he might bring, of the royalty he holds. Jesus' opposition, you can see them scrambling in despair. What are we going to do? His influence is growing. Our influence is diminishing. Now the world wants in. The Greeks come to his doorstep and they want to see him. So they come to Philip and they say, can we see Jesus? Now, the hour has come is Jesus' response for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's in verse 22. The hour has come for the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation, to be glorified, glorified. The Son of Man is no cryptic reference to who Jesus is. This is a passage in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7 that talks about a king who would come and he would reign forever and all peoples would bow down before him and his kingdom would be universal in its scope and forever in its dimension. Time would not be a limit to his dominion. And even, so you can see just Philip and Andrew's face like light up, oh. Okay, the Son of Man. Here we go. The Greeks are about to bow before him. We're about to see him come. You can see maybe Andrew and Philip texting their boys on the side like, Hey, Peter, get over here, man. It's about to happen. The unveiling is about to happen. Because we've been waiting for this moment the whole book of John. In the first miracle that Jesus performed, Jesus told his mom. His mom wanted him to be the life of the party, to change the water into wine. And Jesus said, Hey, Mom, my, my, my hour has not yet come. So we've been waiting. What is this hour when Jesus is going to step from the shadows into the spotlight so that he can own the glory that he is worth? This is his hour of his big reveal. This is not an hour like we missed of sleep last night, 60 minutes. This is the hour of his honor. This is the hour he holds nothing back. He's been elusive this far, but he's going to step right into the spotlight. But it takes, the text takes a a sharp left-hand turn in verse 24. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. You can just see the confusion on Andrew and Philip's face. Hold hold up. (laughs) Finally, Jesus, your hour's here, and you're comparing it to a little insignificant grain of wheat that must die in order to produce fruit, you can see those little like three dots, you know, on an iMessage. I like he, if he's texting his boys, it's like continual, uh, Andrew and Philip don't know what to say now. We've just taken a sharp left-hand turn. Death is going to be your coming out party. Death is going to be your self-disclosure, Jesus. Not only did Jesus take a sharp turn here, the whole book of John hinges in chapter 12. Our neighbor's kids, one of them is named Gabe. They have a way of coming to our house that we've come to know as signature move of Gabe. When Gabe comes to the front door to play with our kids, he rings the doorbell in the most unique way. So 
he rings, and we hear the normal ding dong that you hear in most average doorbells, but he has a way of digging in, and he presses in, so we always wait because this is Gabe's signature move. It always goes ding dong, because he's still pressing it. And we're like, oh, it's Gabe. Come on in, Gabe. We know that's his signature sign. And that's what the book of John has just done. Chapters 1 through 11, ding, dong, the Messiah's here. Look at his miracles. Our, our, our expectations are, are rising and rising and rising. And then it just goes, wait, his exaltation, his moment of glory is going to be a moment of humiliation. His stepping into the spotlight has now been laced with him suffering the pain of death. His death would be the distinguishing mark of his self-disclosure. You see, the world comes to his doorstep, and what does he say? Okay, you came here for the entertainment. You came here to be wowed, but I'm here to save you. This is how I will be seen. If they want to see me, I've got to go to the cross. This chapter has at least six references to his death. The wonder might attract people to Jesus, but Jesus has to accomplish something for sinners. This is how Jesus will be seen by the world. Verse 32, look there with me. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's talking about his cross. Isn't that an odd picture of I will be glorified? If I am lifted up from the earth, it's instrument of death. I will draw all people to myself. His hour of shining is an hour of suffering. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what the Son of Man, Jesus, is like? He wants you to see him at the cross. We won't see his death here in this passage, but what we get to see is the uniqueness of this season where Jesus makes a deliberate choice in multiple choices to go the path that would lead to his death. He discloses his glory in this passage by deliberately choosing death for our sake he doesn't give up and you know how that changes us giving in to him it strips us of any reluctance of why we would not give in to him so I want you to see Jesus's heart glory in three hardships he embraces there on your outline this morning Jesus embraced death Jesus embraced death so death would die. You know, part of the reason why we have a trepidation or fear or tension about death is because we don't know when it's coming. Jesus is very clear in this passage. He knows it's coming. Just a few verses earlier, a lady just poured out an expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet. And this is how Jesus interpreted that moment. This is preparation for my burial. The modern equivalent would be for an able-bodied young man to call, be calling in hospice. He knows his death is six days down the road. The final Passover that he would endure would be the time that death would not pass him by. And death was before him. And look in verse 27 with me. How did he respond? Now, my soul is troubled. The tension is palpable. It's boiling over now. John has reserved this word trouble for this season of Jesus' life. Chapter 11, Jesus walks up to the tomb and sees the friends of Lazarus weeping because Lazarus has died and he says he is 
troubled. Now he faces the prospect of his dying hour, and he is troubled. Chapter 13, he faces Judas's bitter betrayal, and he's troubled. Jesus' trouble is ramping up. Boom, boom, boom. The pressure and pain are piling on him. It's mounting on his back. And he is troubled. He is hurting. Charles Spurgeon, he's a great preacher in London. Back in the 1800s, we named our first dog after him. Not sure if that was a, an honor or a shame. But um, John has, uh, sorry, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, he said that one of the most deep assurances he had of his pastoral ministry was to hold the hands of his members in their dying hour. He often recalled what he labeled the death grips of his, of his members and how they were just so fresh for him that he could feel them just at every day of his ministry, of how they had an exceeding joy about what awaited them around the corner. He said these words, it, it, it has been a glorious thing to find none of these saints in their dying hour, none of them trembling, none confounded, none wavering. But I think if Spurgeon were holding Jesus' hand in John 12, it would not be his experience. Jesus isn't treasuring, treasuring bliss around the corner right now. He's trembling at the terrifying prospect of that final Passover. I mean, we read John the Baptist's great announcement at the beginning of the book of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read it with such relief and joy and warmth. But for Jesus, he was facing that reality. He saw himself as the Lamb of God that was walking toward the slaughter. Six days later. So for us, we swallow with great relief. For him, he took a big gulp. Now my soul is troubled. These words you might not be clear in your Bible are almost verbatim from Psalm 6, if you look in the original. And I love how booked up Jesus is. When, he, when he, something's squeezing him, what happens? What comes out? The Bible comes out. So he's, he's, he's literally quoting Psalm 6 here. But watch what happens in verse 27. He considers one real option before him. What should I say? He sees two paths before him. One is, Father, save me from this hour. He looks at the option. He considers the option, save me. He could bypass death to not die as the Passover lamb, but to let that death pass him by with just two words. He even had scriptural warrant to pray it. I want to put Psalm 6 up on the, on the board so you can see this up on the screen. This is from one of the early versions of the Old Testament. It's almost word for word what Jesus prays here initially. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, the abode of the dead, who will give you praise? So notice David's logic. God, save me. I'm troubled at death's doorstep. Save me from death or else death wins. That's on your outline. Save me or de else death wins. You see the logic behind it? Four in verse five. For in death there is no re remembrance of you in Sheol. Who will give you praise? Save me or, or death wins, God. God. David's saying, God, we have mutual interests here. 
Your praise is on the line if I perish. That's what he's saying. Now look at John 12. Jesus too, just like David, was troubled at death's doorstep. But then watch Jesus. He considers not only a different path, but he considers David's prayer. I could say like David prayed, save me. But no, Father, this is the reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you sense his resolve? His path diverges from David's. So on your outline there, he says, don't save me because it's time death loses. Don't save me because it's time death loses. It was time that death yielded to the glory of God. And Jesus wanted to go in and unlock it from the inside. Jesus is praying, don't save me from it, save me in it. He wasn't praying like David to bypass death. He was praying to beat death. Now this presents a tension with Hebrews 5 when the author of Hebrews says, during Jesus' earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus did pray, save me, but not around death, in death. Not to bypass death, like I said, but to beat it. In dying, he would defeat death. So see him, church. See him in his finest hour. Jesus embraces death in order to defeat death. He goes toe-to-toe with the enemy of our souls. And we'll learn within the month that he wins. Do you realize what's at stake? If Jesus just uttered those two words. I mean, I have a hard day and I go, my wife can tell when I'm having a hard day because I'm stress eating. I love a spoonful of peanut butter on a hard day. I mean, what if Jesus just goes the easier route? What if he takes the easier path? If, If he says, save me, there's no chance when we say, save me, that we will be released from death's grip. If Jesus prays for deliverance, we are done. We can pray, save me, because he said, no, Father, don't save me. He chooses the inconceivable. And that brings us to the second hardship that Jesus embraced in this passage. The second one is Jesus embraced rejection by his own people. Rejection by his own people. He embraced it to draw all peoples to himself. The tension between Jesus and the Jewish people in this chapter reaches a climactic point. It's, it, it's, it's like water building up, building up, building up, and then the dam's got to give way. Verse 37, look how many times he opened his heart to them, but they rejected him. Look in twelve thirty-seven. Even though, I love that, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. He did all these miracles to show them who he was. And they said, no. This was to fulfill, yes, what Isaiah the prophet foretold, but that doesn't rob it of the pain. Even in verses 28 through 30, that section when a voice from heaven thunders out, I have glorified it in your earthly life, Jesus. I will glorify it again at the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus. Jesus says, 
The crowd mistakes that for thunder or an angel. And Jesus says, hey, that was not for me. I am here. I am committed. I did not need that affirmation from heaven. But that was for you. You needed that. And they still closed their heart toward him. And I'm so flimsy and fickle. The opinions of others can sway us so easily. Can they not? And here is Jesus opening his heart to his own people. And they say, no, Jesus, we don't want you. Yet Jesus stayed the course. He embraced rejection. Now this is the irony of all this. Verse 32, if I am lifted up from the earth at the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Being lifted up at the cross would be the means by which he would constrain the world. Now think about the stunning picture Jesus paints here. The height of Jewish rejection would become the hope of the world's acceptance. The net that they made to catch Jesus in his tracks would actually become the net in Jesus' hands to draw the world to himself. This is amazing. His repulsion by his own people would lead to our church being here in Birmingham, Alabama today, where we are attracted to him. Jesus will draw the nations to himself. It's happening, church. I wish you could have owned my phone this week. Multiple people from all over the world texting me about people, about Jesus having this magnetic pull on people. One 14-year-old son who lives in the States right now but is from an unreached people group, a least-reached people group, one of the most violent Muslim people groups on the planet. His family panicked this week because all of a sudden he stopped speaking. He could not utter a word. He even began foaming at the mouth. And so they call in the friends hoping that they could bring some comfort. And there's one believer among the crowd. And the believer just puts out a sheet of paper and says, Hey man, why don't you write down what's going on? Can you, can you express your thoughts in words? And this is what he said. This happened this week. I am spiritually sick. I know the truth. I'm afraid to speak the truth or people may take my life. That's a real threat for this man. I need to go back to my home continent so I can become a Muslim again. You can see the despair in his his words. Underneath him was this hope that's disintegrating because something about the cross of Jesus is constraining him and compelling him. His family might not know now, but I think this guy doesn't stand a chance, right? I just encourage you, if you you find something compelling in the cross, if something is drawing you toward Jesus, give in. You're wrestling with an I will statement of Jesus. It's not worth it. I will draw all peoples to myself. He's doing it. Just give in. Yield to him. We didn't read it, but in this chapter, palm branches are laid out before Jesus as a symbol of harvest and and peace and royalty, all this promise. Now that's replaced by his rejection by his own people. But the next place in the Bible we find palm branches is right here in Revelation 7. And who is around the throne? After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb this lamb right here in John 12 they were clothed in white robes and what do they have in their hands with palm branches in their hands 
And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. He will draw all peoples to himself. See the third hardship Jesus embraced in this passage. Jesus embraced judgment to judge Satan and save sinners. Jesus embraced judgment to judge Satan and save sinners. Just like Dr. King revealed and pressed into the light a tension that was suppressed, Jesus right here in verse 31 takes us to a tension that we may not have been aware of. As he gulps at the judgment that he would fall on him later that week, as he is the Lamb of God, he sees through it to what it means for his enemies. Look in verse 31. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In his defeat, what does Jesus see? He sees the devil's demise. Now is emphasized twice so that we might sense the, the magnitude of this moment. Have you ever seen a movie where they give you a, a, a glimpse of the conclusion at the beginning? So the rest of the movie actually doesn't become you anticipating the end. It actually becomes you piecing together the end that you've already seen. That's what Jesus is saying. The end. We've just been transported. We've been fast forwarded all the way to God's final judgment day. When judgment falls on Jesus, judgment falls on the world. We know the criteria by which will be applied to every human on the planet on that day. You are either in Jesus or out of Jesus. If you are in Jesus, it's great news. Because like he said earlier, the Father will honor those who follow Jesus. Jesus said in verse 47 that he's rushing ahead of us. He's embracing that Passover day where he will become the Lamb of God. He's going to go ahead of us to judgment. Why? For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world in verse 47. He rushed ahead of us and absorbed the judgment due us so that we could be saved. But it's not good news when we fast forward to that day for anyone who opposes Jesus. And that day on the cross was not good news for Satan himself. He refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Why? Because Satan ruled as the ruler of this world. He had been given a limited domain, a limited view of authority to rule over the world and wreak havoc and make it a place where, where disobedience became normal, right? Where righteousness seems strange. But Jesus boldly asserts, my cross is the devil's eviction notice. He now owns the keys. He's taken the keys right out of Satan's hand. What, what has he taken out of Satan's hand? Satan's reign was to bring condemnation on the human race by inciting them to sin and then accusing them of that sin before the judgment seat of God. But what do you find at the cross? You find everything disappearing under Satan's feet. He loses his footing. He loses his keys. The only weapon he had against us was the condemnation our sin merited. And Jesus' death stripped him of his only weapon he could use against us. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. Victory here is gained through injury. It is in being crushed that Christ crushes Satan. 
Calvin said, the tragic cross has become a triumphant chariot. He wins in his defeat. Jesus, in embracing the condemnation that was due us upon himself, actually renders judgment upon Satan. In his condemnation, listen to this church, sinners like you and me find welcome. Satan's kicked out of the house. This is Jesus' finest hour, church. He, he doesn't give up in the face of death. He died so that death would die. He was rejected by his own so that he might be revered by all. And he was judged to save us from the judgment. But he was judged to take Satan down. His finest hour. Look at him, church. Look at how beautiful he is. That affects every hour of our lives. How should we live in light of the hardships he embraced? Let's look at this. And I put now Brook Hills on your outline because I think that that captures the sense of the text. There's an urgency to this text. Now, Brook Hills, we need to live differently now. Have we given in to Jesus? That first bullet there. Have we given in to Jesus Is there anything in your hand you are refusing to give up to him? Maybe it's a a relationship, uh, a way you perceive of yourself in the community or, or among friends, a lifestyle, money, whatever it might be, a house, a child even. You can make them as idols. This isn't just for people who are considering Christ. This is for seasoned Christians. Are we daily giving in to Jesus, letting him define the terms of our relationship, dictate the terms of our relationship. It's me or nothing, Jesus says. Follow me. And he's not here to negotiate. There's no cruise control Christianity. A Christianity that costs nothing is not real Christianity. That's what Jesus is pressing in here. It's so odd that people will mistake your love for Christ as your disdain for your own life. It's risky to follow this Jesus. Just ask Lazarus. He has a target on his back this whole chapter because he was raised from the dead. How do you threaten a man that was raised from the dead, though? (laughs) You can't threaten him. That's us, church, giving in to Jesus. Let this text pry your hands off of whatever you're clinging to in the proven trustworthiness of Christ. Tell me, church, what is there to lose in a love so strong? What is there to lose in a love so strong? He embraces pain in this chapter so that he might convince your doubting soul that embracing him will not lead to pain for eternity. Give in to Jesus as the one who did not give up on his mission. Let her be there. Do we live like the darkness is hunting us down? Do we live like the darkness is hunting us down? This text helps us live in appropriate tension. It helps us discern our time. We can judge clearly. You see, seeing Jesus in his finest hour at the cross enables us to see darkness in its truest, ugliest form. For Christmas, my son Simeon wanted a snake. 
Never thought I would give in to that request, but we acquiesced and we gave in. So now we own a snake at the Bugner household. I know I, know I just ruined any chance of having many of you over for dinner. Um, so we got his home all set up and we went to PetSmart, got Groot. That's his name. Simeon gave him the name Groot. And for that first week, Groot was out a lot. I mean, he was on his bed at Simeon. He, Simeon even let it crawl up his sleeve. I was just freaking out. I think my mom is still panicking over watching some of that on FaceTime. Um, so one night I had a meeting, and it was Groot's first feeding time. So while I was gone, they thawed a frozen mouse. Sorry, you guys, I'm grossing all of you out right now. And they put it before Groot. And Groot got it. And put his head up and just started working it in immediately. He took it down. And all of a sudden when I got home that night and even the next couple days, the mood about Groot as a good little pet had changed. (laughs) For, For a few days there was a little bit of caution. And seeing it eat, we realized we brought home a cold blooded predator, not a pet. Now, this Jesus in this hour reveals sin and Satan's truest, ugliest form. Darkness, it's a predator, church. Darkness is out to destroy us. Darkness is still out to overtake us. Verse 35, the light will be with you only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. But I think we treat it like a pet. We make a home for it, get a little black light, we nurse it, we let it crawl up our sleeves, right? We get so close to it, we think it's a pet. It's not a pet, church. It's not to be played with, it's a predator, a cold-blooded, ruthless killer. Just the other night at the pastor's retreat, I was trying to send my wife a funny gif or meme, however you say that, whatever those images are that kind of capture the moment. So I'm scrolling through trying to find one that fits the moment. And then one sketchy image pops up. And then I'm scrolling through another one. And then it gets worse. And I'm like, done. Shut it down. Text my wife. I don't want darkness to grow at all. Hey, babe, this just happened. I just want you to know. I don't want to give darkness any room to grow because I was in this text. Darkness, I wasn't looking for darkness, but darkness was hunting me. The darkness is out not to negotiate church. It's out to destroy us. So are you casually coasting toward darkness? Wake up. Go to the light. I mean, everyone's eyes right now in our world is is on this virus and where it has spread. We feel our threat level has been raised. And we want to be good neighbors. We want to be wise ourselves. So we wash our hands. But we're taking such immediate action because we feel threatened by the vulnerability we feel before this virus. Friends, it might come to Birmingham. Darkness is here. It's much more deadly. Much more deadly. Step into the light. Letter C. Jesus draws the the nations as we declare his cross. Jesus draws the nations as we declare his cross. Jesus is clear in this text. His, his being lifted up on that cross would be the magnet that draws the nations. His mercy is just bringing them in droves. 
It's clear through the rest of the New Testament of how he does that. He does that through the church declaring the message of his cross. His drawing accompanies our declaring. So our simple task in our mission to make disciples in Birmingham and among the nations is just to make the cross clear. Just people look at it. Is the the cross clear to your neighbors? Is it clear to your coworkers? Is it clear to your schoolmates? You go to, to, to class with every day, make the cross clear, and he makes it dear. That's our job. We make it clear, Jesus makes it dear, and draws the nations. How clear is the cross? Some of you might be headed overseas. Learn the language so you know what? You can make that cross clear. And the magnet of his mercy can draw the nations. This, this, this coming Wednesday, we're going to be in this room at 6.30 to hear from some of our, our church planning team leaders. And we're going to see about how God is drawing a people group to himself at the Global Dispatch. We encourage you to come out this week. Look how Jesus is doing that right now among the people we are deeply invested in. So let's not take away from the cross. Let's not add to the cross. It doesn't need to be dressed up at all. Let's just declare it, church. Letter D. In your final hours, remember his finest hour. This text sobers us to the reality that Jesus faced death with troublesome thoughts. We face death as well as a result of sin. Our bodies are headed to a funeral home and we should live in that tension. Judgment is upon us, and we know the criteria by which we will be judged on that last day. We either follow Jesus to the Father's honor, or we're in darkness, and we don't know where we're going, Jesus says. But Jesus walked the path of death before us. There's a taunt in the scriptures toward death. You remember it? We often think about it in in Easter time. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You know where that sting is? It's right here in John 12. It's stinging Jesus over and over and over again. When he says, now my soul is troubled, he's thinking about his death. And that trouble, you remember, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 30, it's ramping up. And then right when it's reaching its pinnacle, John 14, look how John uses this word trouble to capture Jesus' message to us. Don't let your heart be troubled. What was troublesome to Jesus brings such relief to us. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And he ends chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Give me the trouble and I give you the relief. He didn't pray save me so that in our final hours, when we pray save me, he will be there for us. Spurgeon's congregation, what, what happened with them? They, they peered around the corner of death and they saw exceeding joy. Why? Because Jesus peered around the corner of this week and saw pain and didn't give up. You see, church, giving in to Jesus means death will give in to life in your life. It will be swallowed up in victory. We sing it often, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. 
His finest hour fuels our hope at our final hour.